Today's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 5. Would everyone please stand for the reading of God's word? You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. Well, if you're just joining us, I want to give you a special welcome. Uh, My name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor here at Westgate. And we are, as a church, have been spending the last several months walking through the Gospel of Matthew together on Sunday mornings. Uh, Our normal course of things is to kind of work through different books of the Bible slowly, uh, listening to what God is saying in each of those books, and, and Matthew's been our focus. But this morning, as the school year has just gotten started, and as we're launching uh, our fall ministries, I wanted to, to step out of Matthew for a minute and consider uh, the more general idea behind something that Matthew's been saying, or that Jesus has been saying over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's his call to follow me. Follow me. So you think of Matthew 4.19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus calls us multiple times, not just in Matthew, but in Mark and and Luke and the other gospels, that, that if you are going to be part of him, it means following him. And not only does he call us to follow him. He also calls us to make more followers of him. You think of how the gospel of Matthew ends with the great commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples 
of all nations. Make more followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does that look like? How, what does that mean for us, uh, each of us personally? And then what does it mean for us together as a church, as a congregation, to be followers of Jesus Christ? Is being a Christian about becoming a better me? You know, figuring out how to live my best life now. Is, is it about God helping me to achieve my dreams or my goals in life, uh, my needs for safety and security and and prosperity, and health, and so on? Or is being a Christian about making sure I'm just better than you? That's another common version we run into. So making sure I've got all the right answers, that I'm keeping all of the right rules, making God happy, even if that means I'm relatively miserable in the process. Or is it just making sure where I end up when I die? making sure I don't end up in hell, I go to heaven instead. And other than that, it doesn't really change much of my life. What does it mean? What is Jesus calling us to when he says, follow me? What is Christianity all about? How we answer that question of what it is that Jesus is calling us to, of what it means to follow him, how we answer that question shapes everything about us. It shapes everything about us. It, it, uh, our expectations in life, our dreams, our hopes, our relationships with each other, our relationship with God. Uh, It affects what we give ourselves to in life, what we spend our time and our money on. It affects what we do when we gather together as a body, uh, when we're gathered for worship or when we're meeting in, in other times and in other ways. What is it we're about? What are we apt to? How we answer the question what does it mean to follow Jesus, will shape all of those things about us. And so that's what I want to do this morning, is just to spend some time thinking about that very basic question, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean for me personally, for us as a community? And we're going to look at several passages, uh, several places in the scriptures as we walk through that, but part of that we will camp on the passage we just heard read in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. So let me pray for our time as we kind of dive in and ask this question together. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Let's pray. Well, Lord, when we gather, we are here for you. Uh, We're not just here for us, though we know uh, that there is nothing better than to be in your presence with your people, uh, thinking on and dreaming together about the goodness of your grace through the gospel. Uh, Lord, there's nothing more satisfying in life than knowing you. And yet we are here for your glory and your name. And we want to be changed by you and by your spirit. And so, Lord, as we look into your word and as we consider this very basic question, uh, God, would you open our, our hearts and our eyes to see you? Lord, if we've made assumptions about what it means to be a follower of Christ and you want to correct those, uh, I pray that you would do that this morning. If we have been walking and we are weary and tired, and feel like checking out. I pray, God, that you would encourage us this morning. And if we're lost and confused, uh, Lord, would you find us this morning? Would you draw us to yourself? So, Lord, would you be at work uh, 
as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, to understand what it means to follow Jesus uh, or to be a Christian or to be his disciple, those are all referring to the same thing. To understand that, we have to begin by looking at who Jesus is and what he came to do. In other words, we have to begin with the gospel. We have to begin with the gospel, with the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we have, that's, that has to be our starting point because the gospel is the message of the Bible. It's the message of all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation that centers on Jesus in that redeeming, restoring work. Uh, it's the message uh, of Jesus who alone is able to save us through faith in him. Now, when we talk about the gospel or the message of Christ, one of the things we often do with that is we focus almost exclusively on what Jesus saves us from. Jesus saves us from our sin and from God's righteous judgment against that sin. That is a beautiful, life-giving, and absolutely crucial part of the message of Christ. Without that, nothing else makes sense. But that's not all that God does in us through the work of Christ. Yes, he saves us from sin, but he also saves us for something. And it's that part that I want to start thinking, that I want to begin thinking about this morning. What is it, not just what we're saved from, but what are we saved for? What are we saved for? And to understand that, we have to go back even further, all the way to the beginning of Scripture, really. Uh, to God's purpose in creation. And so if you have a Bible in front of you, we're going to go on a little uh, field trip, if you will, this morning and, and stop at a few sites along the way. So go ahead and, and, and look with me at the beginning of the story, Genesis 1. The goal of the gospel is to redeem and restore what was lost and broken in the beginning. The goal of the gospel is to redeem and restore what was lost and broken in the beginning. And so if we don't understand what the beginning was all about, we're not going to understand what it is we're being rescued for. So Genesis 1 tells us that God created humanity, people, us, in his image. Unlike all of the other creatures in, in that account that are each made according to their kinds, that's what's unique about humanity. We were made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What does it mean then? to be made in the image of God? That's the first question. Uh, if you've met my family uh, and seen my children, you would probably agree with a comment that we hear regularly when we're introduced, that my kids look just like me. Is that approximately accurate? I'm seeing some head nods. Uh, when you see them, you can tell that we're related, that they're my children and I'm their father because they look like me you might say that they are in my image. 
And in the context of Genesis, that's exactly what this phrase, first and foremost, means. It's language of relationship between a parent and a child. If you look at Genesis 5, just a few, and you don't have to turn there. We'll also have the scriptures up behind me, so uh, don't worry about getting lost as we, as we uh, go through these different passages. But Genesis 5, just a few, ch- few chapters later, uses the exact same phrase to describe the relationship between Adam and Seth. Genesis 5, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when, he, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so to be in the image of God means first that God made humanity to be his children, to be related to him to have relationship. But it's also language of reflection. So it's, it's language of relationship, but it's also language of reflection. You know Joshua's related to me because he looks like me. And so it is that humanity ought to look like God. You ought to be able to tell that we come from him, not because of our physical appearance and so on, but because of our lives, because of our character, because of how we live. It ought to be a reflection and a picture of what God is like. Humans are, are to be like a mirror. So when God looks at us, he ought to see a picture of himself, his love, his glory. That's, that's what he made us to be. And, and when we look at each other, it ought to be like taking that mirror and kind of tilting it at a 45-degree angle so that when you look at the mirror, you see a picture of God. When we look at each other, we ought to be able to see the character, the love, the glory of God. That's what humanity was created for, to be a a reflection. So we relate to God as Father. We're we're to reflect his glory, to to show the beauty of what he's like. And then finally, we're to do that as his representatives. You keep going in Genesis 1, verse 28 tells us, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the, uh, every living thing that moves on the earth. So we're to serve God by running the world, if you will, not however we want to, but as his faithful representatives. We're to uh, serve God and his kingdom, filling the earth with his glorious reputation. These image bearers who who ought to reflect God are to then be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with that glorious image. That's what we were made for. And apart from experiencing that and knowing God in that way and serving him, life will not be full. Life will not be full. Relationship, reflection, representation. That's the meaning of life, if you will. If we can be so bold as to answer that question this morning, what is the meaning of life? Genesis 1 tells us it's to know God, it's to serve him with joyful obedience as a display of his glory. Now, that's the blueprint. But when we look in the mirror, when we look at each other, we look at ourselves, we know that's not what we see, is it? Something's wrong, something's broken. Something has happened to that image. Something's broken in that relationship. And that something is what the Bible calls sin. So rebellion against God. 
you follow the story of the first humans, Adam and Eve, instead of trusting and obeying God as their father and king, they turned their back on God and they sought to take his place. They decided they would do a much better job of running things than God. And as a result, their relationship with God was broken, and the reflection that they were supposed to display became distorted. They no longer represented his rule, but they instead tried to replace it with their own. That is what we call the fall. That's, what, that's when the story begins to unravel. You're barely out of the chute in the Bible, and everything's falling apart. That's what human sin does. And we've carried on that sinful rebellion, every human ever since. It's as if Adam and Eve took a rock and shattered the mirror. And so when you look at it, instead of seeing a perfect reflection of God, everything's messed up. Like there's an ear where there's a nose ought to be and and so on and so forth. We still reflect God in some way, but the picture's distorted. And that distortion poisons everything in life. Our relationships, our emotions, our actions, our hopes and our dreams, everything is corrupted in some way by the sinful rebellion that began then and has continued to to carry on. And the worst tragedy of it all is that it separates us from that relationship God made us for. It brings us under God's judgment, his curse, instead of his blessing. The image is broken. Instead of following God, we follow the ways of this fallen world. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes it like this. Paul says, the apostle Paul wrote this letter. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following not God, not your creator and king, but following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is a fancy way of talking about the devil the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so instead of following God, we followed our own passions, our own desires, our own ideas, and the result was that we became not children of God, but children of wrath, children under his judgment treasonous rebels against God's throne. That's why we need a savior. We can't do this on our own. That's why we need a savior. And that's what the story of the Bible is ultimately about. It's about how is God going to take what was designed to be good and designed to be beautiful and loving and fulfilling that was completely messed up by our sin. How's he going to take that and put it back together? How's he going to restore that image, redeem that relationship? That's the message of the Bible, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do through his life, death, and resurrection. And so to, to you know, step onto the trampoline and bounce clear ahead uh, from Genesis to the New Testament, which is a big foul if you're really going to understand the story of the Bible. But we don't have much time this morning to go through the whole thing. Uh, but just, just understanding the background of God's creational purpose is what helps us make sense of what Jesus came to do, of who he is and what he came to do. And so you think of passages like Colossians 1.15. It tells us that Jesus 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Where have we heard that language before? Genesis 1. So we were made in God's image. Jesus shows up as God's image, as our faithful representative. Jesus is and does for us everything that we were supposed to be and to do but failed at in our rebellion. He's our representative, our perfect representative who never sinned against his father, but he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross in order to deal justly with sin. Sin needed to be punished. Jesus dealt justly with it. He gave his life, but also then to deal mercifully with sinners because he took our place. So he was our our perfect representative and our savior who who bore the full weight of his father's wrath against our sin for us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we kind of looked at our life and and we did some thinking and we said, I need to turn myself around and I'm going to start doing things different. And because of that, now God's going to love me. No, he did it despite the fact that what we deserved was that wrath, was that condemnation. He did it by his grace. He did it by his grace, by He gave us something wonderful when we, in fact, deserve something very terrible. Ephesians 2.8 puts it like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. We are rescued from our sin by God's grace. But we're not just saved from sin. Remember, we're saved for God. And and Paul continues to make that point in the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for acts of obedience that honor God, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a a plan and a pattern for our lives. He doesn't just rescue us from sin, but for our created purpose. Relationship, reflection, representation. Jesus rescues us from sin and for God. He restores in us that image. The Apostle Paul says in another one of his letters in Colossians that through faith in Jesus, we have put off the old self, that's the old fallen humanity, Life on my terms, for my purposes and my glory. Uh, So we've put off that old self with its practices and have put on the new self, the new humanity in Christ. And listen to how, how Paul describes this new humanity, this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we were made in God's image. We broke that mirror and messed it up. Jesus rescues us in order to restore in us that image of God, that relationship, that reflection, that representation. He puts the mirror back together. He puts the mirror back together that we might be and do what we were made for, to live all of life in a loving relationship with God, serving him in joyful obedience as a display of his glory. What does it mean to follow Christ? That's what it means to live all of life in loving relationship with God, 
serving him in joyful obedience as a display of his glory. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. It's not living life for myself. It's not using God to achieve my dreams. It's not just getting out of hell, nor is following Jesus about being some sort of super Christian. You know, it's something all of us are called to do. When, when the Bible uses the word disciple, sometimes we think, we hear the word disciple and we think, whoa, those are the, the super holy ones or something like that who, who are really after it. You know, they're getting after it. They're doing it. And we think, well, you know, I know this about myself and, and I don't know how to do that and so on. And so we just kind of, you know, I don't know, we get anxious or, or overwhelmed. We think disciple or follower of Jesus is like this special category. That's not how that phrase is used in the Bible. In the book of Acts, when it uses the word disciple, it uses it interchangeably with words like believer and Christian. It's the same thing. It's just describing that relationship in a certain way with respect to our call to be learners and followers of Christ. We're all called to live life for God's purposes, to live all of life in a loving relationship with God, serving him in joyful obedience as a display of his glory. That is the goal of the gospel. That is the call of the disciple. So what does it then take to do that? If that's what we're called to, to live all of life for God's purposes and joyful obedience, displaying his glory, how do we begin to move in that direction then? What is the process for growing spiritually, if you will? And how do we help each other do that as a body, as a congregation? Here's where I want to take a look at Paul's relationship with his apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. So now if you want, you don't have to, but if you want, you may jump in your Bibles uh, back to 2 Timothy 3 and 4, what we heard read earlier. In this passage, we see a picture of both what it takes to grow spiritually and how someone comes alongside another person to help them grow as a faithful believer, as a faithful follower of Christ. In other words, what we're looking at in these pages is what we call discipleship. So we talked about the goal of being a disciple. What's the process of growing in that? We call that discipleship. And, and that's another word you hear a lot in Christian circles, and, it, and it's defined in different ways. But if being a disciple means living all of life you know, in, in loving relationship with God, serving him in joyful obedience as a display of his glory, well, then discipleship is simply helping people do that. That's all it is. It's sharing life together in such a way that we're helping one another grow in following Christ. And we help them by sharing with them God's transforming word and our transparent lives. And we're going to see that in these verses. So look with me at 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. This is Paul uh, speaking to his apprentice, Timothy, here. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul is urging Timothy to continue in the faith, to continue in the faith. We learn in this letter back in chapter 1 that Timothy came to faith through the life and witness of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, their legacy of faith that they passed on to Timothy. It was through their lives and their words as they pointed him to Jesus that, that God opened his heart that Timothy became a follower of Christ. He believed the gospel and was saved. But Paul doesn't then come along and tell him, now that he's a Christian, to move on from that gospel. Okay, you believed that. That was ABCs. Now we're going to move you into algebra or something like that. He doesn't tell him to move on from the gospel. Look at what he says to him. He tells him to continue in it, to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. The same grace that saves us is the grace that sanctifies us. The same grace of God that that redeems our life initially is the same grace that's at work to change us and, and grow us as followers of Christ. We don't move on or graduate from the good news of Jesus. Uh, Pastor and author J.C. Ryle puts it, if we would be sanctified, and, and by that he means made holy or grow in our relationship with Christ, our reflection of him. If we would be sanctified, our course is clear and plain. We must begin with Christ. We must go to him as sinners with no plea but that of utter need, and cast our souls on him by faith. So if we are going to be sanctified and become restored in that image with God, we must begin with Christ. But he continues. If we would grow in holiness and become more sanctified, we must continually go on as we began and be ever making fresh applications to Christ. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Continue to apply the good news of Jesus to your life daily, to this part of your life and that part of your life. That's how we grow in holiness. That's how we grow in Christ's likeness. And that's exactly what we see in that process in Timothy. Notice how God's grace is manifest through, first, his transforming word, and second, through transparent lives. So continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. How? Knowing from whom you learned it. So people's transparent lives. The, the people who have loved him and invested in him. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. The scriptures. The Bible. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So we need to continue on in the gospel, but how do we do that? We need God's people and God's word to do that. Those are the means by which God gives us. And of course, the Holy Spirit is at work in that whole process to make that transformation. But we need each other and we need God's word to do it. Discipleship necessarily focuses on learning and obeying the word of God. It's necessarily focused on scripture in the Bible This book we have in our laps, in the Bible, God is speaking. 
Paul says in the next verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is his authoritative, powerful, transforming voice. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be competent, mature, equipped, ready for every good work. God hasn't left us to ourselves to figure life out. He has made himself known through his son preeminently and through the scriptures as a witness to him, as his living and abiding word. And so discipleship necessarily, when we're helping each other grow as followers of Christ, we must be in the word. We must be sharing that in different ways with each other. But then, second, discipleship happens best in the context of community. So it's not just God's transforming word, but it's that word as it's lived out and obeyed in the context of community among God's people. Shared lives, what we call fellowship, real biblical fellowship. Not just coffee and cookies and conversation about the weather among church people. That's how we often define fellowship. We're talking about partnering together in the gospel of Jesus. That's biblical fellowship. Applying the good news of Jesus to your life and to mine, sharing in that together. Relationships where we can be honest about our junk and how much we've messed up, where we can bear one another's burdens and celebrate one another's joys, where we can seek Christ together, where we're learning from each other. So following the pattern of someone who's a little bit further down the road from me and passing on what I'm learning to someone else. We want to help them, too, become established in the faith and equipped to serve God and his kingdom. Look at, look at the context of community, if you will, or the nature of the relationship between Paul and Timothy and how they shared life in verses 10 through 11. Paul says to him, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. I mean, Paul's telling Timothy, you have a pretty comprehensive knowledge of who I am and what I've taught. And you don't get that kind of knowledge of one another by spending an hour together in a worship service on Sunday morning. Community happens Here, in our gathered worship, we treasure this time, and God is with us, and he's at work receiving our praise and changing our hearts. But we need more than that if we are to be faithful followers of Christ. We need to share life outside of these walls, doing business with sin, doing business with our trials, helping, learning, seeking Christ together. And as we do that, we do that with one of our aims as living on mission. So, so it's, it's discipleship is focused on learning and obeying God's word in the context of community, but that also is aimed at expressing itself in what we often call mission or making Christ known or making disciples. In other words, it ought to overflow in our lives uh, as we pass it on. That was central to Paul's concern as he was uh, walking with Timothy. He wasn't just 
giving Timothy all of this stuff so that Timothy could be the super Christian, and it just stops there. He was equipping him to take his place. He was equipping him to take his place. Flip back a chapter to chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Paul says to him, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's often pointed out in that verse that there are four generations of believers in that verse. What you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, entrust to faithful men, it's the third, who will be able to teach others also. That's the fourth. It was never meant to stop with Timothy. In fact, at the end of the letter in, in chapter 4, Paul tells him, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I am about to kick the bucket. And if you don't step up and minister to these people, what will happen? He's been equipped in order that he might pass on And so Paul solemnly charges him in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, to preach the word, take up the mantle, make Christ known. It's not just about receiving, it's about being equipped in order to give. That's the pattern of disciple making. Being a disciple, a follower of Christ, naturally results in making disciples. So it focuses on learning and obeying God's word, in the context of community, for the sake of mission. Some of you have heard my story of how I grew up in the faith and was equipped for ministry. So I apologize if I bore you by telling it again. Uh, But it wasn't through Bible college or seminary. That's not where I learned ministry. It's not where I learned to walk with Jesus. I did go to grad school at one point, and it was phenomenally helpful. But... I learned to walk with Jesus, not from somebody even in full-time ministry, from a fellow college student, someone who was taking classes just like I was, who was working on the side, but who made it a priority to give his life away by investing personally in people that they might come to know Jesus and walk with him for a lifetime. When I got to college, I was a brand new Christian. I didn't know up from down as far as walking with Jesus. I did whatever my Christian friends did. That was my standard. And so if they went to a Bible study, I went to Bible study. If they made out with their girlfriends, I made out with my girlfriend. That was just whatever they did, that was my standard for walking with Jesus. And Brian came along, and he spent time with me pretty much every week for four years, as long as we were in the same town. For four years, we, and sometimes that meant getting up at 6.30, which I did not like. But it was so worth it. It was so worth it to have someone share their life with me. Not just, here's all the ways I'm great. Sharing their struggles, sharing their sin, sharing their junk. Walking patiently with me as I learned to say no to certain things in my life I didn't want to get rid of. He didn't just abandon me in the process. He walked patiently with me, opening God's word. I'd ask a question. He didn't give me his answer. He'd say, well, let's look at this verse. And he would just help me learn how to read the Bible, learn how to pray, learn how to share my faith, and how to turn around and do that with someone else. The same process of discipleship. 
And that's where the real joy is in all of this. It's not just what I get out of it. I mean, that knowing Jesus better, that's awesome. There's not, you know, nothing that can compare to that. But seeing God use you to help somebody know Jesus better, that is awesome. Seeing them make hard decisions to say no to sin, seeing them fall in love with Jesus and want to walk with him and turn around and then do that with someone else, there's nothing like that. Following Christ and helping others to follow Christ by sharing your life and God's word. It's a process of discipleship. So who are you learning from? And who are you investing in? My prayer is that all of us would be able to answer that question, if not now, soon. And there's lots of opportunities for learning, and they're all super valuable. We have Sunday school classes. We have different kinds of studies and so on. We're going to talk about um, uh, one in a minute, uh, our home group ministry. But if we're to be faithful to the vision that God's given us as a church, to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ, I'm convinced that that will not happen apart from a pervasive culture of disciple-making, of sharing our lives in God's word, praying together, and passing that on. Following Jesus and helping others to follow Jesus. That is one of the reasons why we're highlighting the home group ministry this morning. because That's one of the venues uh, that, that we've created as a church to give opportunity for those kinds of relationships to happen. And you're going to be hearing from each of the home group leaders in a little bit, and, and there's more information later. But the whole reason those groups exist is to get us together outside of church for the sake of discipleship, community, and mission. And I really encourage you to prayerfully think about getting plugged into one of those if you're not. There are also other opportunities again. You know, there are uh, folks among us who just simply get together and read the Bible and pray together. We don't slap an official ministry label on it. It's just God's people doing what God's people do. And that's beautiful. There's a women's Bible study midweek and a Friday men's breakfast. There's, there's student ministries for younger people as well. So there's lots of opportunities. But are we seeking intentionally to follow Christ? And are we helping others to do that? And it doesn't happen at a safe distance. It doesn't happen at a safe distance. It means being willing to, to connect and, and get to know one another for the sake of the gospel. The call to follow Jesus isn't given to us as mere individuals. It's given to us as a body, as a church. So we need one another in following Jesus. And it's not something that we do out of our own strength, just trying harder, you know, create a new program. That's not it. We need the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus as the word makes him known to us by the spirit. So we must continue in the gospel. And as we transition uh, to celebrating the Lord's Supper together, it's those two things I want us to reflect on as we take this meal. The truth that following Jesus is something that we do in union with Christ and in communion with one another. 
That's the picture this table gives us as we celebrate the gospel. When we, when we eat the bread of this meal, it's not because coffee hour isn't here yet and we need a little snack to tide us over. That's not the point of the bread and the cup. The bread is a sign pointing to Christ's body given for us, the body of Christ, which by grace nourishes us through faith in him and what he did for us on the cross. The cup is a sign pointing to Christ's blood shed on the cross for us. And out of that blood flows the forgiveness of sins and grace received by faith. This meal is a picture of our union with Jesus and our communion, our fellowship with one another. And in celebrating it, we celebrate the good news of Christ for us. That strengthens us to follow him. So that's what we're going to do together. If you are a Christian, if you have seen your sin for what it is and know that Christ is your only hope for salvation, that he is your king and your Lord and your savior, you are part of that body and you are invited to this meal to share in it together with us. If you're not a Christian or you're not quite sure what that means, uh, then I encourage you just to let the elements pass this morning, but don't tune out. We've got our ushers getting ready to help serve us. Thank you. But don't tune out as this goes by. Instead, think about what we've heard this morning. Think about what you were made for. You were made for relationship with the creator of the universe, to be his child, to know his love, to joyfully serve him, and to reflect his glory. And there is no satisfaction, there's no lasting satisfaction in life apart from that relationship. Think about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you. That where we failed, he didn't. He is that perfect image bearer who by his life and his death and his resurrection is able to restore in us that image for the sake of God's glory. He's putting all things back together again. And he's doing it by his grace. Think on Jesus and trust in Jesus. Let's pray as the ushers come forward. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that that when you looked upon us in our sorry state, in our selfishness, in our foolishness, in our brokenness, in the wounds that we carry from the sin and foolishness of others, that you didn't mock, you didn't wipe your hands clean. You put on flesh and you came and you died to rescue us. Lord, we want to know and follow, and worship you. And we want to do it together. So Lord, as we celebrate this meal, we pray that your spirit would strengthen our hearts to trust and depend in Christ more and more, to continue in what we have learned and firmly believed. And we pray, Lord, that as we do that, your grace would strengthen us to help others do that as well as we seek to make disciples for Christ. Lord, we need you and we celebrate the fact that you have given yourself to us. Bless this meal 
for your name's sake. 